Great. Well, welcome, everybody. My name is Sean, and I am an employee with Sirius. I handle the strategic partnership with our corporate and industry and government partners. So I want to welcome everybody to the talk today. Courtney Falk is a wonderful uh, representative from Sirius, and he was able to fill in very last minute. So we're very grateful to him for bringing up this prior talk on threat hunting. Courtney is going to discuss his ongoing research into pod people, um, search engine optimization, spam campaign. This talk combines threat hunting and threat intelligence with real-world applications, including insights into how cyber criminals work and how organizations can collaborate. Dr. Courtney Falk is an information security professional with over 15 years of experience in the government, academic, and public sectors. He earned his doctorate of philosophy from Purdue in the Interdisciplinary Information Security Program, which, by the way, has a virtual open house on November 6th. I'm sure that will be on our website. When Courtney is not researching critical infrastructure for Purdue, he enjoys playing miniature figures and playing tabletop board games. So, Courtney, again, thank you very much and welcome and take it away. Uh, thank you, Sean. Uh, yeah, so the talk of this, uh, the title of this talk is Bride of Pod People. Um, th this is the second kind of iteration in this series. It's tracking an ongoing campaign. The first version I actually presented to Sirius was about three years ago. So uh, I took a bit of a hiatus and I came back to it. And this is what I came up with. Uh, the original version of this talk I presented at um, Circle City Con over the summer. Um, but this I've reorganized to try and highlight some of the um, different topics and subjects that I was able to integrate together. So this is an application um, and it is a real world war story basically, but the point is to kind of expose people to different concepts of information security they may not have gotten exposed to yet. So um, as a part of this campaign, I was uh, exposed to a lot of user data. Now this is publicly accessible user data, but for the purpose of this talk, I wanna highlight that I am not going to identify any of the affected users um, on these either uh, WordPress sites or social media sites. Um, I do have some information that may be tied to specific people who are involved in the campaign. I will also not release that information. Um, generally, I have a no doxing policy, even if I'm convinced that someone is firmly involved. So the caveat is you could technically get this information too, because it's all publicly accessible, um, but please don't be a jerk. Um, the majority of people involved in this are going to be innocent victims. Uh, Sean gave the introduction. Um, I got my PhD from Purdue and I am currently working at Purdue with Sirius um, on a grant for Sandia and CISA. Um, and I think diplomacy may have been the name of the game we were trying to guess earlier. So I'm gonna look that up on Board Game Geek when we're done here. So, about three years ago um, in the summer of 2020 is when I first uh, got tipped off to the Pod People campaign. Now, my the way I treat threat hunting is I categorize it into two main groups. You can do threat hunting reactively and you can do it proactively. Proactively would be like 
uh, let's say you work for an enterprise, you become aware of a new technique or you get like a new um, rule set from a vendor and you you run that through your SIM, be it like Splunk or Elastic or something similar. And so you'd want to see, can you find this badness in your network? And if so, let's start hunting that down. Let's start tracking where that came from. The other side is reactive. And this is uh, the lead that came from this was very reactive. That's, let's say you get an alert from your SIM or something like that. Um, and in my case, it was, um, I was using the Goodreads webpage and um, a user liked one of my posts. And I thought, well, that's really dumb because that was a dumb post I made. And out of curiosity, I clicked on the profile and we'll look at the profile here in a second. But that was the lead. This really uh, began reactively. I wasn't out there looking for something bad, um, but I was fortunate and um, it was very educational. I was able to kind of brush up some of my different skills. As a part of that original research about around three years ago, I had already started to see this activity existed outside of the social networks I focused on in that first report called Pod People. Um, the, the activity for that actually goes back much further. Um, some of these WordPress site activity, I think it goes back to 2018. Some of these indicators of compromise. Um, for those who don't know, Indicator of compromise is a technical artifact that um, is connected to a security incident. These are things like IP addresses, uh, domain names, file hashes. Uh, these are specific concrete things that you can hunt for, you can search for, you can write a rule against. Um, so IOCs are going to be the term. Whenever I say IOC, I'm talking about something very specific, very concrete. Um, and a part of what I found was that this campaign was fairly novel in that I was not seeing, I was certainly not seeing any finished reporting, anything that tried to tie this all together. I was finding like bits and pieces here and there, like one person on WordPress might complain about uh, bots using these domain names. Um, I might search like Alien Vault, which I believe is now owned by AT&T but that's an open source threat intelligence sharing platform. And those indicators showed up there also. So, but the novelty was that no one had tried to tie this all together. And so that kind of became my thing. So like many, many people in 2020, I found myself with some spare time. So I decided to put that towards the betterment of uh, cybersecurity. Um, the, the original pod people was inspired by the idea that um, the, the alien pods have taken over and cloned these people that they originally were good people. And so obviously um, in the history of monster movies, it's getting to be Halloween. Um, the sequel was always like Bride of or Son of. So Bride of Pod People is the second version of this. Um, it's also a side note that that's might be relevant to college kids is um, I did not spend any money on doing this. I used public tools or uh, free versions of accounts where possible. And I'll, I'll identify the tools I use as I went along if you're interested in digging more into those. So this was the account that liked my report, um, that liked my uh, Goodreads activity. And um, I did a lot of censoring, so it's a lot, it's kind of hard to figure out what's going on. But the red part um, 
is what was censored out is that's his username on Goodreads. So you actually see it there in his website under his profile, and you'll see it in the URL bar because that exact same string appeared both as his like per user specific ID for Goodreads and as a subdomain uh, connected to okkl.ru. And that's really what got my attention was um, why is someone using a .ru website on this um, on Goodreads. Um, this gentleman was uh, East Asian and he was working in Western Europe, uh, which of, in and of itself wasn't really what rang the bell. It's that this person was then using a Russian web, web hosting provider. So that third piece is really what triggered to, to me and it's like, well, let's dig in a little deeper. So one thing, I like to do when I'm threat hunting is once you get to this point of diminishing returns, you need to pivot. Um, you'll probably hit a brick wall. You'll probably uh, have something that's just not generating results. And at some point you got to stop and reassess what you're doing and say, is there a different direction I can do this? Is there a different direction I can take this in? So for me, I started out with this one lead and the first question is, well, is there anyone else on Goodreads who's affected? So the first tool I used was just a web browser, or sorry, a search engine. And yeah, it turned out there were other users that were using OKKL. Um, and then I was like, well, that's strange. And what I noticed was they tended to be liking each other's activity. So if you went to a post that that person liked, you will find out that maybe 20 people like that post. And these are like really mundane posts, like uh, Joe Brown liked this book. Like there's no reason 20 or 30 people would like it. And I found is if you just start going through these, you start getting a whole list of other domains. So after a while, I kind of exhausted that and I felt like I've gotten all the data I can from Goodreads. Well, is this just a Goodreads problem? And so using the search engines, I went out and just started searching for these subdomains and you know, excluding Goodreads from the results. And yes, I was getting a lot, um, just about everything, Reddit, Facebook, um, MySpace. It was showing up all over the place. So that was, that was my first pivot, is identifying, like, now what's, what's the breadth of what's going on? And I found my next lead doing that. So I'm looking for domain names. And what I found is we saw on, um, I'll go back to here. They were changing the, the website URL, the, the threat actor in this case, and inserting their own. And there's no real um, activity on Goodreads. There's no ability like um, in the profile to do an open, you know, a general text blob. But what I found when I started looking at breadth was there were sites that would allow that. Like uh, you could add like a user profile, like uh, Courtney likes long windy walks on the beach and candlelight dinners or something like that. And then what I found by doing that was the same text tended to appear. It wasn't like exactly the same, but uh, we'll look at some examples here in a second. It, it, it was like a pattern. It was really easy to tell when you were looking at the same thing. So by pivoting, 
and trying to explore new avenues of where I could find this, I found a whole new set of uh, behavior, of characteristics that I could be searching for. And from that, I did my next pivot. And I was like, well, let's, let's stop with the domain names. Where can I find this text? The, the test was, is this exact, exact text available elsewhere? And the answer was yes, um, which tells me a couple different things. Um, it tells me that they're probably using a tool to generate this text and they're reusing the text in various places. So either like the, the algorithm they have is so limited that it's regenerating the same results, or perhaps they're just generating result and then copying and pasting it a couple different places. Another thing I then went to pivot on after I exhausted the messages was, well, where do these domains resolve to? Right? Can we look up the IP addresses? Does that tell us much? Um, that ended up being mostly dead end because they tended to all resolve to the same one IP address, which was also interesting because I was finding hundreds and thousands of different affected users. But all the domains, all these different dozens of domains were resolving to the same one IP address. And I wasn't sure at the time why that would be. But as I learned more about like uh, spam search engine optimization and criminal um, activity in general, I learned a bit more about why that would be. Um, and in the end, the, the final step was, I've got all these different web pages, uh, sites and uh, blogs that are affected, cool. I know something about the breadth. Now, what about the depth in terms of time? Do I have a data set where I can see this activity happening over time? Because that's what I was missing was the time component to give, give an idea of the scope. Like I had these posts that said in 2018, um, these WordPress users are spamming, whatever. Um, but I did end up having two different um, options for data sets. And we'll look at some very basic data science and visualization and the kinds of questions we can answer with that here after a bit. And that was my final pivot. And that's what brought us up to this point where now I've done this presentation and uh, working on actually doing a written report to share. So I talked about the messages and this is one of the examples of the messages. This is actually from the, the site, the Swedish language uh, blog, blog with two Gs. Um, and what I found was the, the same text message would be copied and pasted both in the title and the body of, of the post. So it, it was kind of lazy in that regard, but also like the, the general behavior was um, these, the accounts themselves would be real accounts in my assessment because they were lived in. Usually there had been a user posting in Swedish, because this is a Swedish language blog, posting for a long time, and then it would go silent in, on an average of two years uh, from the time of the last legitimate post to the first post that was obviously spam. And you can also see at the bottom of the post that now it's starting to pick up that, you know, this is actually a Russian language post, so in Cyrillic text. And these lures are all kind of dating and romance spam themed. But as an example, um, I've released actually the list of all the all these text messages that I found. And if you go through it, you'll see that 
they're very formulaic. It's like sometimes they change or add an adjective or they'll inject like a number or something like not very sophisticated. But what was really interesting, that's what is an interesting lead that I haven't been able to resolve is that sometimes they'll actually inject uh, Russian or Ukrainian language words, like just one word. It's not like the whole post. So I, I learned some um, Russian and Ukrainian profanity doing it, uh, researching those. Um, and sometimes they'll also mix and match Latin and Cyrillic script. So there's some really interesting things going on, some interesting leads that allow us to uniquely identify this behavior. Um, it begs the question though of, are we identifying the behavior of the tool, like this text message generation tool, or are we identifying the behavior of the user? Should we assume from the use of this tool that it's the same one user that's using it across all these different sites? So at this point, um, I'm pretty pretty confident that um, these were legitimate user pages, both on social media and the WordPress blogs. So the question is, um, you know what happened what's what's going on how did they how did they get here the conclusion that i came to was that credential stuffing is the most likely avenue um i did some some analysis of um the number of affected accounts i saw like on blog versus the estimates of overall user activity i could find about like on blog in general and it was not even around 1%, definitely less than 2% of the effect of the overall user base. So that tells me a couple things. Like if the attacker had remote exploit against WordPress or blog, like the core service, like why are they just, you know, picking one or 2% and why are they focusing on these dead accounts? That didn't quite make sense. Um, credential stuffing is, the most likely hypothesis that I've come to, which fits a lot of the, the behavior we've seen, um, accounts that have been neglected, um, that haven't been logged into in a long time, um, that would fit with um, users who have lost their password and now it's being used against them. So we see how this, um, we'll go back and look at Goodreads here. We've seen that the point of this is to insert URLs into a user profile with the hope of um, inducing someone to click on them. And there's also points where they're trying to add these uh, clever messages to try and get you to, you know, get you interested and get you clicking through. So what happens then when you click? Um, so when you get if you get to this point, the first thing you should do is not click, right? Um, if if you do want to click, um, the first thing you should do is there's a lot of online services, um, especially like sandboxes. Um, I mentioned Joe Sandbox earlier. Uh, I've been using AnyRun. That these are the places where you could drop a URL and let it render it in a virtual machine in a web browser, and then see what happens and where it goes. Like you should use that isolate environment before you try to um, 
execute it yourself before you start clicking on a machine that you value. Um, if you feel technically savvy to create an isolated virtual machine to do this yourself, that would also be an acceptable route. Um, it is not necessary to um, use like Tor or VPN. Um, that could help. That, that may improve your OPSEC, but actually what I found in some situations is that the end sites themselves may be filtering against things like Tor and like VPN. So, but in its effort to be a little too clever and to have a lot of OPSEC, uh, you may actually end up slowing yourself down. So this is what I found. If you click on one of these links, like uh, the username.okkl.ru, you'll get sent to this one IP address. Um, I think it was hosted in Germany at the time. And you'll get, you'll actually get bounced from the, the HTTPS, the secure link to HTTP. And what's going to happen is you're going to get this very, very small web page. Um, this is almost the entire web page. There's like, um, this is the JavaScript that was embedded in the header, um, and I was able to do static analysis on this because it's so simple. Um, and they made some weird choices in doing this. So what we see over here first, these are the get parameters. These are being added um, to the URL. They're also doing a redirect. But these were not in the original lure that you would see like in Goodreads or blog or something like that. These are the user ID and the campaign ID for an affiliate program. Um, this is the, exactly the same kind of affiliate program you might see from like Amazon or eBay. Um, you know, you sign up and then on your cooking blog, you link to Amazon's collection of cookware and using your affiliate ID, you get a, a return of the sales. Well, that's the exact same thing, but as I learned, uh, the criminals do the do the same thing. Um, in this case, redirecting the user on into the the criminal redirects. That's where the affiliate program comes in, and this by itself isn't necessarily a bad thing. This is actually um, exactly how sites like Amazon do it. But this was weird. I did a little threat intelligence and I was digging backwards and trying to get the history of these domain names. And of the six domains, um, only one was ever registered. So these are dead domains, um, at least at the time of the research. So what this is, is probably an attempt to uh, obfuscate or complicate automated analysis. Like if you ran it through a sandbox, they would they might try to evaluate all these domains and get confused, but it it's not very effective basically. So this is the most important part to take away from it. This is the entire meat and potatoes. So they're setting up, they're redirecting you. This is going to cause an HTTP 302 redirect um, using JavaScript. They're going to redirect you on to another domain, and they're appending these uh, campaign, these affiliate IDs. But here is a, a bit that got cut out originally. This is also from the header of the web page. This meta is 
also trying to do a redirect. So we've got JavaScript and we've got a meta tag redirect. What happens is if you don't render this page with JavaScript, you're going to get the meta tag redirect. Meta tag is going to dump you at google.com. Um, this is a liveness test. So let's say you think you're cute and you're writing a Python script and you're saying, you know, I'm just going to get that or curl. I'm just going to get that web page because I just want to see what's on it. Well, you're not rendering the JavaScript using those tools. So it's going to redirect you to google.com and you're going to say google.com. That's stupid. There's nothing going on here. So you failed the liveness test. So you're going to need a slightly more complicated system. What I actually found as I was investigating these um, domains in uh, some of the sandboxes publish results, like especially for the public free accounts, um, people had looked for these from time to time. And, but the screenshot, the end result was it always went to Google. Sometimes um, it went to like the Google Play Store. So some of these sandboxes by themselves, by default, were not smart enough to defeat this very, very basic liveness test. So you clicked on the link in the profile. It came to this. Um, this is called a cloaking service. Um, and it's, it's creating a separation. So one, you can't see where it's going forward. But also, the people it's forwarding to don't know where it came from now, because you've You've cut out. You've cut out that information um, from. Should be what in the referrer. Um, you've cut that out. So it's good for opsec, and it's good because the the cyber criminals aren't giving away where their their accesses are, where where they're generating the traffic. Because some of these affiliate programs at least pay lip service to. You can't send a spam activity. Well. If they don't know where it's coming from, let's be honest, they're not really going to look and they don't care that much. So let's go on the second hop. It's going to take us into the actual CPA affiliate network itself. I did not do static analysis on this, or I tried. Um, so at the bottom, you, you see the beginning of this JavaScript blob, and there's a couple obfuscation things they did here. They minified it, so they made it small. But also, I expanded it, and it didn't help a lot. Um, they obfuscate the strings, so you can't like easily pull out any domain names or anything. And they've done different JavaScript techniques, like they're dynamically creating the object. So it's not using these obfuscated strings. So you're not even sure like what, what default methods does the string need. Sometimes you can kind of infer the behavior if you at least know the methods. Um, but they did a decent job of obfuscating it. So I went with a dynamic analysis, um, which is just I put it in a secure environment and I ran it. And it does a couple interesting things. It, it generates like a subdomain um, and then redirects you to that. And it's embedding additional information like um, where this file was run from. So that would be, for, for a website, if you just got directed like you did, that URI would be like the URL from what we just saw, like okkl.ru or something. But in my case, if you're running it from your disk, it, the URL is 
file colon colon and then the path. So this this actually could be an effective way for these affiliate networks to see who's reverse engineering their their tools because um, if they're logging all of the things that they're pulling back, all this information they're pulling back, all they have to do is start seeing like, well, who's who's trying to run this locally, um, and you know perhaps where are they located. But what happens here is it actually ends up bouncing you through multiple sites, um, usually like two or three. Uh, I'm not clear on that, but one possible benefit would be you're getting a couple different clicks, right? So every time you go through this, um, someone might be getting um, uh, two or three times the value out of your, your one click. I did find one or two leads about the affiliate network. Um, I don't have anything I want to share about that because honestly, I wasn't really able to corroborate anything. Um, so I don't have any strong analytic conclusions to draw from. Um, however, I will say that the leads I found were um, connecting both to Russia and uh, Ukraine, Kyiv. Um, so at this point, that's, that lines up with what we saw with the message lures, but that's kind of circumstantial. And at this point, it doesn't give us anything to go with. All right. So at this point, I've done some technical analysis. I've collected a lot of data about the user accounts that are being affected. So I decided I've, I've hit a wall technically Let's data science this and let's see, like, can we see any patterns of behavior? So this is the blog data that I had. And I just create a, a network X graph. And I connected, like, the phishing domains with the, the user blog. Because what I saw was um, repeated use of the same phishing domain in certain blogs. So I wanted to, like, see, is there a connection? And this is what I came up with. And it's kind of hard to parse, so let me walk you through it. The oldest part, the oldest behavior um, is actually, it's down towards the bottom right. And we see the user blogs, those are the blue circles. So we see a few of them, and they're kind of surrounded by these red squares, which are the phishing domains. So what that's telling me is that each affected blog is actually connecting, is linked against um, several different phishing domains. But in the upper left, this is actually the more recent behavior, like as of like December of 2022. What happened was they changed their, the threat actors changed their behavior. And all of a sudden they were using a very small set of phishing domains, but they're using it across a lot of different blogs. So what we're visualizing here is actually possibly different stages of the same campaign. Um, different behavior just visualized by how, how these things connect together. In the middle, it's kind of uh, weird and kind of in between the two, but we'll let me show you um, what that looks like over time. So for this, for this graph, y-axis doesn't mean anything. I was just trying to separate out um, the blogs. These are the user accounts. Um, oh, sorry, this this specific graph is of the um, 
the domains, the phishing domains. So I just wanted to graph out like, well, we I know this the first time I've seen it and the last time I've seen it. So just sort it from first from the first seen date. And the behavior was very stark. Um, you, you see this kind of gradient where it's it's either they're slowly rolling out additional accounts or perhaps they're slowly compromising additional accounts. But what was interesting in that um, I got from the visualization is like there's a very clear denotation of when like each phase stopped, when they decided to stop using this particular set of phishing domains. And that's how I started to cluster them together. Um, one thing that I haven't gone through that I'm kind of curious about is you see these kind of like um, steps in the data. It may indicate like a gap in my coverage, like I'm missing some of the data, or it could have just been, I don't know, a holiday where they took a couple weeks off. Um, but if you so chose, you could probably do an estimate, like look at the gaps, estimate how many different, on average, how many new domains got rolled out, and then start filling in the gaps. And that might give you a more comprehensive number to work with. Um, what was also interesting is I, as I dug into these different sets of domains, the first one was real random, the, the first wedding. It was, it was a real hodgepodge, and it seemed like they collected these domains from all over. The second one, the one called OK Wedding, it was, I, I literally wrote this regex here, and that will tell you, that will match every one. Um, they were all five letters. They all started with OK, which may or may not be an indication um, of, there's a popular Russian social media site called Odnoklesniki. Uh, forgive me. Um, but OK is the abbreviation for that. And those all end in .ru or .online. So they changed from this big grab bag to a very small, easily recognized set. And then in the new behavior, you see actually a whole gap in how these phishing domains were used. They changed, um, they changed the registrar in this third Soviet wedding one, I'm calling it, to a fast engine. And I called it Soviet wedding because they shifted to using .sutlds. Those are the old um, disused Soviet Union TLDs. So th that was um, another interesting piece of visualization. One thing I was curious about, and if you look at the original Pod People report, um, I visualized some of the Goodreads user behavior, and I saw activity that convinced me that there was botnet interaction that there was automated interaction that's manipulating these accounts. So I was curious if I could um, get more information. So I had time information from Goodreads. I was interested in geographic information. Well, MySpace is very helpful. Um, a lot of user profiles will include the location, usually like the city, the state, and the country, um, but also, by default, it appears the posts will include that, and they'll include it based on the IP you're connecting from. So while I never got the actual IP these things were connecting from, I did have a rough idea of like the city and the country. Um, are these from Prague? Uh, it might be a neighborhood in Prague. Um, 
so what I did was I just compared the two. Um, I took all the affected MySpace accounts I had, and I looked at their geography, and it was like 60% uh, of the users had U.S. locations, like Kansas, Mississippi, whatever. And then I did the same for their posts. Or the, the posts that I was very sure were um, the, the spam posts. And only nine of those were U.S. So, like, if you wanted to do an actual, like, um, statistical test, you could probably do, like, the chi-squared. I'm, I'm confident, though, that it would show you that the, the ordinal distribution of these are different. So, in my mind, this, this is supporting the hypothesis that there is a botnet activity. Firstly, because the locations being posted from are so different. Um, so Lawrence, Kansas, that's what, um, University of Kansas? I'm sorry if I got that wrong. But it's unlikely that they're jetting out to Prague to posting and coming back. Maybe they do. Maybe they're cool. I don't know. But the distribution of posting locations was like so uniform as to be essentially random. And if it's random, that's, that's suggesting to me that someone is able to distribute this behavior across such a wide uh, geographic distribution. And to me, that speaks to uh, uh, the nature of a botnet. So I was able to start to fill in some of the gaps from the original campaign using this data. So we've gone through a couple of stages of this threat hunt so far. We've pivoted through a couple investigative techniques. Um, we've done a little reverse engineering. Let's be honest, JavaScript reverse engineering doesn't really count. Um, and we've, we've done a little data science because we wanted to crunch the numbers and visualize what we were looking at. Well, what do you do with it now? Um, in this case, I'm not doing this for an enterprise. This is a personal project. And really, I'm doing this to like improve the, the good of the commons, right? Um, trying to clean up um, the garbage on the internet. So I was reaching out to a lot of different companies. Most companies did not respond. So I understand now that this is pretty common. Um, if you were to do something like this, I guess don't be offended. If no one reaches out to you, they're they're not being personal. They're probably overworked. So um, the the most helpful people I actually found were at Foursquare. So thanks to those guys. Um, if you do contact someone, if you do share your information with them, just be aware that that's going to be a one way conversation. You're going to send your data to them, and you will never hear anything back. They will. They won't confirm, really, uh, if it was useful. And they certainly won't share anything back. So one thing I really wanted to do was I wanted to swim upstream. I wanted to like find some of these bots and find out where they're connecting from. Well, to do that, I needed uh, metadata around these user logins. So I was asking them, like, OK, like, can you anonymize this user behavior? All I really want is, like, you know, timestamp and IP address. Um, and like, here's a specific window. Like, I'm not asking you to query your entire MongoDB cluster or whatever. Like, if you could focus it on this. Um, I mean, the answer is always no. I understand why. 
um, that doesn't mean I'm not salty about it um, because I don't think any one company, like if they're all overworked, no one's going to dig into this and no one company is going to solve it on their own. So if they're all keeping this data siloed, it's going to be real hard to get anywhere with it. Um, I will I will suggest to companies who are concerned about this, you have a couple avenues. Um, the formal one is the Information Sharing and Analysis Centers or the ISACs. Um, these exist on like a per industry, per business sector basis. So um, most of these companies would probably fall under like the IT ISAC. Um, Ford would fall under the automotive ISAC. Um, you would find one that's relevant to you. These are formal, sometimes paid subscriptions, and they are, they're safe spaces where you should be able to share and collaborate. There are informal options also. Um, fight clubs isn't my term, it's something I've heard them refer to. And these are, these are like ad hoc groups. They're kind of like an analogy to like the, the criminal forums and the marketplaces where these are cybersecurity professionals from many different companies who realize they can't solve the problem on their own. And they have these ad hoc collaborations. Someone will come in and say, I've got an IP or I've got a domain name, help me dig into this. Um, so they're called fight clubs because you don't talk about fight club. Um, you have to be vetted and vouched for. Um, so these aren't necessarily avenues that are open to everybody. And um, they're not exactly maybe blessed, talk to your lawyer first, or I don't know, maybe not. So the last stage of, of the threat hunt process is more of the threat intelligence. Um, I won't get into deep into threat intelligence here. That could be a whole class on its own. Um, but we've got all this data. We've got our conclusions. We've tested a couple of hypotheses. Well, now what? do something with it. Um, and part of it is not just identifying the badness. So um, like I've been publishing lists of IOCs, these domain names scan for them, these IP addresses are what they map to. Um, that's fine. But you could also find some of that information like on Alien Vault or something like that. Um, sometimes it's helpful to also include mitigations like, um, if you're concerned that you're seeing this, here's the next steps you should take. Um, don't assume that every company is staffed up with people who are as experienced and well-trained as you. Um, you know, give, give them a little bit of a lead that, that might be appreciated. And then you can move on to the, the either fun or tedious, depending on your personality um, part, which is the reports and the presentations. So this is the second presentation I've done on this. I apologize that I've neglected the report part. It's actually a, um, a Word doc on my desktop. I promise I'll get that done any day once I find the time. But these are the final steps. As a part of threat intelligence, one of the last things you do is you report and then you disseminate, which is you share. You identify the right venues to do that. You identify the salient information to share. So in this case, um, uh, GitHub is where I'm publishing all the IOCs. Um, and as I mentioned at the very beginning, I'm not sharing any of the information like lists of 
compromised users. Um, I have reached out to companies and I have shared specific lists of users with them, but do not do that kind of thing publicly. Um, so th these are the types of things that wrap things up. Um, now, threat intelligence actually kind of forms a cycle like the Ouroboros, like the snake that eats its tail. So typically what happens is dissemination isn't the end. You, you typically have a new set of questions um, and that will start a new investigation. In this case, a lot of my questions that I have, I cannot answer on my own. Um, are these botnets where they're coming from? Who's operating them? I do not have access to the necessary data to come to those conclusions. So uh, functionally, this might be the end of this particular research task, but um, in, in an ideal world, the threat intelligence process would continue churning on. So this is more a working hypothesis that um, I started with the, with the assumption that every different system in this, in this network is being operated by a different threat actor. That's my null hypothesis, right? The alternative hypothesis would require me showing some kind of um, connection between the two. It could be IOCs. Um, it could be, um, you know, some very concrete behavior. Um, perhaps if I find something in the metadata, uh, who is records used to be real great before GDPR was a thing. So I, I, the null hypothesis is these are different people, which is something I've seen over the last 10, 15 years is that cyber criminals have become very specialized in what they do. Uh, if you can, uh, go to France, Botnet's a great conference, or their videos are, uh, I think they're all on YouTube. Um, but they talk about like, if you want a botnet, um, you hire a botnet. Um, if you want to start one, you buy an exploit, or you just pay someone to exploit computers for you. And you give them the URL, or sorry, you give them the installer of your malware. Um, that perhaps you got, you bought from another party. So it's not even malware you wrote anymore. At this point, cyber criminals are almost um, project managers more than they are software developers. They're, they're managing this, their criminal campaign through its whole life cycle. And they may not need to even write their own phishing messages. You could source that out. Well, heck, uh, one of my predictions if it's not happening already is chat GPT going to be an amazing source of uh, really great phishing messages. So this is the, this is my view of the network um, as of right now in the research. So I'm assuming that there's a different threat actor who's compromising these user accounts on the social media uh, and the WordPress sites using credential uh, stuffing. So they're, they're acquiring passwords on markets and open leaks, and then they're compromising it. And they're, they could just be reselling it saying, uh, I don't know, what would be a, for, for a dollar, I'll put 10 URLs in these accounts. So you just give me the URLs in a dollar and I'll put 10 of them in there. And so whoever's operating the cloaking service can 
just they don't even need to have the passwords or automate anything. They're just like, here you go. And then now they're reaping all the benefit of redirecting this traffic with minimal risk. Um, and then going on to the CPA network, you could argue that the CPA network and the advertisers are not criminal necessarily, but it's one of those uh, things where by proximity and by frequency of interaction, it becomes difficult to argue that these are legitimate business people and they're just, you know, they've accidentally been pulled into it. And so th that's why I'm considering them threat actors in their own right. We talked a bit about the cloaking service already. Um, another avenue I would like to dig into is um, identifying this. I, I actually have tried I shared some of the source code. I haven't like found a specific source. Uh, one thing I was hoping was like, oh, they just copy and pasted this from somewhere. Like, um, you could fi actually find a lot of um, uh, malware examples on GitHub. So, uh, but it turns out that this is probably a custom implementation, which you saw. It's not exactly the world's most sophisticated example. And the affiliate network. Um, we talked a bit about how uh, they they track the behavior, the, the actions, you know, because someone wants to get paid, they want credit for their own activity. Uh, I, I came up with some re remediations for everyone involved. So the users have their part to play, right? You, you need to take care um, of what you're doing on the internet. Um, you need to carefully manage your accounts. Um, stop using the same password everywhere. We've said that before. Um, and you should be deleting your accounts, which, you know, companies need to make that easier to do. You should be able to manage your own data. And the social media sites and the WordPress sites, there's a lot they need to do. Um, I've, I've published all these indicators. That's a good start for them. Um, but they, they also need to be a bit more proactive about, like, calling these old accounts. I get that they want to keep their user engagement and user account numbers high. But at some point, you got to recognize that um, it's like you've got the abandoned lot on the street. Um, you've got to take care of that, that you have a responsibility for that, too, as the site operator. So um, this is the second version of the pod people. Uh, we've taken it a bit deeper. Um, this is probably here to stay. Um, there's not a whole lot of interest, honestly, in um, digging a bit deeper. So um, who knows, maybe in our three years, I'll have another update for you. Um, but yeah, again, um, this was all done freely using open source software. So um, if you wanted to um, dig into something a bit deeper, there, there's options available to you. You don't have to be like a, a sock with a million dollar a year budget to actually sink your teeth into this. And if you wanted to get to those IOCs, you could. Um, let's see, we are at 50 minutes. So um, that, do we have time for any questions? We do, if you don't mind if uh, uh, I ask them. Yeah, go right ahead. Okay, all right. I'm gonna, so Solomon Sonia was, uh, he posted something really early on. So I'm gonna kind of go in the order that they came. Mm -hmm. 
So he asks, he said, it's a great talk. Did you ever use risk.iq for threat hunting? It might not be free now, but it was a great threat intel resource a few years ago. And with that, he asked, did GDPR impact your intel gathering? And if so, how did you get around it, especially with who is domain name analysis? So that's question one. Yeah, thanks, Solomon. Um... So I, I mentioned um, talking about some of the tools. Um, I guess I failed that a bit. RiskIQ was one that I leaned to a lot. RiskIQ is a passive DNS service. So they, they go out on the internet and they, they collect examples of this domain resolving to this IP address. Then they aggregate it all together. So that was the first place I went. Okay. They have a free version. They were also bought by Microsoft in the last year or two. And I have noticed a kind of degradation in the free tier support. So you could still get a Risk IQ account and get some data, but even some of the older data I have collected three years ago is not available anymore, which may be part of the Microsoft uh, attempt to get more money out of the subscriptions. Uh, GDPR is the European Union's general data privacy regulation. And the effect of that was it basically anonymized all the who is records. Who is records are are the are the um, backend data that's talking about like I registered this domain and this is who I am and this is how you contact me. You know, in case it's a bad domain, right? And someone someone hacked you. GDPR essentially uh, scrubbed all that. So most of that data is gone. Um, I did find a couple email addresses, which was interesting. And it was a very small pivot. I actually was able to find a couple more leads using those, which suggests an operational security snafu on their part, right? Someone had to almost deliberately forget that GDPR was a thing. Um, so Yes, GDPR limits the effectiveness of who is records, but there's a couple breadcrumbs still out there for you. Great. Thanks, Court. Okay, so this question is from Rahul, um, and he, he says, these types of spam lure messages are also prevalent on Instagram. What they do is they message a person and ask them to provide their WhatsApp number and they later video call people and screen record them watching explicit videos and threaten to publish the video if they don't pay them money. I wonder how we can do threat hunting in that scenario. Yeah, I think uh, I think that falls under uh, sextortion, sex extortion. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's a little different. I did find in my research some of the, the CPA network domains associated with different activity. People were like, um, my, my home router got hacked and my uh, traffic's being redirected. And it was redirecting it to these same like dot life domains that belong to the CPA network. And they had different user and campaign IDs, which was an interesting way to separate out. So there are multiple threat actors out there using multiple different techniques but redirect to redirect traffic to these same affiliate networks. So it's an interesting kind of 
sync or aggregation. But it's also something to keep in mind that those are not necessarily the same two threat actors. Okay. So we need to think about our conclusions, yeah. Awesome, thank you. Now, Drew asked two questions. He asks, is the freebie version of any.run sufficient for this work or do you have to pay for the real one? That's one question. And have you tried reversing JavaScript with an LLM? The, the free any run was, um, but I was only doing onesie twosie. So I wasn't trying to churn through a hundred different ones. You, I was using it more like um, just a sanity check. So on that scope, that amount of work, yeah, it was fine. Um, but also keep in mind if you do that, if you look up something in VirusTotal, um, if you have a free account, it's probably publicly available to look at your results, like with a sandbox, like Joe Sandbox. So keep in mind, if you don't want people to know that you're looking at their website at these bad links, that information may be getting published as a part of your research. So keep that OPSEC in mind. The large language model of the LLM, no, I hadn't tried that. Um, I've been starting to dabble more with like a mid-journey in chat GPT. Um, I haven't done it for source code. I'm a little nervous. I don't know if I'm nervous because it, I'm afraid it'll replace me, but that's an interesting avenue. That is. Okay, so last question. Chris asks, what's your opinion of the security of pass keys like Google Passkey as opposed to traditional usernames and passwords? Um, for many years, I've heard of many different password killers and they never have. So to, to a limited extent, passwords, usernames and passwords are gonna be with us forever. And that's just due to the nature of passwords being something that it's very easy for us to carry with us because it's something we know. Um, having said that, I think these more technical solutions like passkeys are offering us important things like, um, it, it's kind of like systems like Kerberos where there's, there's like limited windows um, for like the tickets um, that will help prevent things like replay. So it's gonna, it's going to offer us additional security and additional um, options as we, the site providers, but I don't think it'll ever truly supplant usernames and passwords. Well, great. Thank you. So that's, that's our questions. And again, Courtney, thank you so much for stepping in. I actually understood most of your presentation, which made me very happy because there are times when I don't. So I really appreciate that. And I want to thank everybody who uh, came and watched and listened and also have an update for tomorrow. We were going to have for Cybersecurity Awareness Month, we were going to have Rosa Smothers from Know Before give a presentation, but she has um, a health issue. She's unable to give the presentations. So instead, we will have a gentleman named James McQuiggan, who was also with know before. So that link will be on our website. Um, if you guys would like to hear his talk tomorrow, I think it's at two o'clock. Is that right, Mike? Yep. Two o'clock. Okay. Perfect. And uh, again, Court and everybody, thank you very much. Uh, appreciate it. Thanks and for having me. Have a great day. Thanks. Right. Thanks a lot. Take care.